Author Media presents Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. And today we have a very special guest. For those of you who've binged our older episodes or who have been with us for a while, his voice will be very familiar. He's a best-selling author and a member of the Christie Hall of Fame. James L. Rubart, welcome back to the Novel Marketing Podcast. <laughs> Thomas, it feels good to be here. It's been a long time. He's back. I'm so back. you thought you were gone. You thought you were in a James L. Rubart. You were wrong. So our hope is to bring Jim back from time to time to go consult the guru on the top of the mountain to see what uh, pieces of wisdom he has uh, to bestow on us. And one of the things that Jim and I talked a lot about in the five-year plan to becoming a best-selling author is the importance about writing a good book. This is the uh, changing the world with writing worth talking about part of the show because good marketing helps a bad book fail faster. So good writing must come first. And for most authors who don't realize, the writing is actually their weakness. A lot of authors come to this podcast thinking the writing is fine and the marketing is where they need help. And in reality, it's the writing that needs help often even more than the marketing. And one of the enemies of good writing is the inner editor. So Jim, why is the inner editor a problem? Wouldn't it be a good thing to help you have better writing to have a little inner editor kind of whispering in your ear the whole time you're writing? <laughs> the problem is the phrase the whole time. Part of the time, yes, inner editors are wonderful, but the problem is it's the whole time. And what happens, and every author out there listening to this knows this, is the inner editor slows us down. It slows us down from production. And production is key to having a successful career as an author. So we got to figure out how to produce more brochures. You and I have talked many times over the years uh, that our best marketing is this brochure we call a 300 or 400 page book. And if that brochure is captivating, it's going to sell the next book. So how do we get more brochures out? Well, we deal with that inner editor. Yeah, because the more books you write, the better. And a lot of authors, they struggle. It takes them a year or two years or three years to write a book. And that's fine for a hobbyist, but it's really hard to support a family if you're writing that slowly. While other authors are able to write a book every month or two. And it's because they have their editor bound and gagged in the closet <laughs> and they only right. let the editor out at certain times for certain tasks. So uh, walk us through, you know, why is it so hard to deal with the inner editor? Why does it haunt us so badly? Yeah, there's this quote from Ursula K. Le Guin that I really like. She says, as a writer, you are free. You are about the freest person that ever was. Your freedom is what you bought with your solitude. And that's really true, right? At least when I write, Thomas, I wrap myself in that solitude and I hold myself up in this little world, a world only I know. And there is sacrifice to get there, right? You sacrifice some of your social life. You sacrifice some family time. You sacrifice your TV show. But when we are in there, in that little cabin of our minds, there's this huge freedom to write whatever we want, to let our imaginations run wilder than wild, to explore and create and dream with just abandon. And I love that part of being a writer. Sometimes I'll say to people, I feel like I'm at the center of the universe when I'm writing, meaning this is exactly the place I am supposed to be. There's no one looking over my shoulder, no judges of our work, et cetera, et cetera. There's no readers telling us what's good or bad or agents or editors no critique partners, but there is somebody that is watching and that is that inner editor that we just talked about. And 
the slowdown that that has had at times in my writing career made me really want to address the issue for other people that might be struggling with it. Um, I was consulting a client last fall and I told her this a number of times and I repeated it. I said, you have to learn to kill the editor. Her writing is really strong. Her idea is strong. Her desire to see her novel come out is strong, but the editor absolutely has a stranglehold on her output. That editor inside her wants everything to be perfect right off the bat. And she was, she was going for nano this year. And she, you know, November 1st, she had everything lined up and ready to go. And at the end of the month, she had 15,000 words written. Now I've actually read those 15,000 words and they are outstanding and she's unpublished. She's just making the foray into the writing world. But those 15,000 words, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you're so far ahead of where I thought you would be. So the talent is there, but she just cannot quiet that editor. So we started brainstorming together and I came up with some ideas that I think um, have helped her. I know have helped her be a little bit more productive. All right. Well, well, don't hold us in suspense. How, what do we do? <laughs> How do we handle that editor? Because I will say, even for nonfiction, yeah. the editor, the problem manifests a slightly different way. So for fiction, I feel like it slows down the writing process. For nonfiction, I think it does that as well. But it also fills the writing with so many qualifications where you're qualifying everything. You're saying that what you are writing ends up being really watered down and bland because you're overly cautious because that editor is sitting on your shoulder with the what ifs, you know, like, well, what if in this extreme example, maybe this isn't true. And so you're like, okay. And you're trying to account for a very complex world and what should have been a 200 page book ends up becoming a 300 page book and it's worse for it. Uh, So how do we handle that inner editor? So some of these are ideas I've actually done myself, and some of them are just ideas I've come up with. But I think if people apply some of these, it can be extremely helpful to them. So number one, sprint with other writers. Years ago, I was on deadline with my second novel. So it was, gosh, this was back in 2011. And two friends and I, we competed. All of us were on deadline at the same time. We had the same deadline. And we competed to see who could write the worst, most words in an hour. And so every hour for four hours, we uh, messaged each other to see who had the most words in the previous 60 minutes. And I'm telling you, Thomas, my output was really strong because I was more concentrated. I'm a competitive person. I was more concentrating on winning than I was actually what the words were. Well, that freed me up actually to write really strong words that I could go back and, of course, massage and edit and fine tune and polish later. But I found at the end of those four hours, like I just said, I had put out more than I typically did in a four hour stretch. So get together with two friends or three friends and have that competition. And we didn't do this, but what if you put a prize? Everybody puts five bucks in the pot and you win that 15 bucks. Whoever writes the most words, you get that $15. So you might try amping it up a little bit more. As I will say, we're not writing on typewriters anymore, right? Like back in the day, every time you had to edit was painful. You had to pay for paper. You had to pay for ink. You had to type the whole thing over again. And it was this miserable process. And now we have these magical things called word processors where the editing (laughs) is a lot easier than it used to be. And now the hard part is just putting the words on the page so that you can edit them. And, And I love this idea of just you know, racing, whoever can write the most words. There's no checking to see how good the words are. You're just, you know, hey, I got a thousand words and you got 2000 words. So you get the prize and then, you know, you race again the next hour and maybe the prize goes the other way. My um, grandfather was in a tennis group and he and uh, three or four other guys would play tennis two or three times a week. And they did this for years and they had a trophy, one trophy. And you had to, and whoever was the champion of the night got to take the trophy home. And if you weren't the champion the next night, you had to give the trophy 
to the next guy. <laughs> and so the trophy just kind of it wound its way around this group. And it was a really fun kind of silly reward, but also an incentive uh, to play tennis really well. And it, I think it kept them younger, longer <laughs> as a result of all the tennis they played. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm a, I love golf. And I was reading in Golf Digest the other day about a famous, not pro golfer, but famous um, football player that plays golf. And he said, and he's got, you know, millions of dollars, but he says, we still play for a $2 bet. Cause it just, <laughs> it, it, it just amps him up a little bit. It gets his attention. It's, there's something on the line. And so I like that idea. Uh, <laughs> I love that tennis thing. Um, the other thing, Thomas, is to attach pain. We are motivated in life by two things, pleasure and pain. So attach pain to it. So you're going to tell a friend the amount of words that you're going to get done in the next week. And if you do not hit your goal, you have to send them a $100 Amazon gift card. That's motivating when you go, I don't want to send Thomas a $100 gift card. That motivates me to write. So attach some very real pain to it. And this is something I actually did with my first critique group. And and I will say the pain doesn't have to be financial pain. It's like we have seen just in the last few months some amazing results in the novel marketing mastermind groups because part of every meeting, everyone sets their goals for the next month. And then in the next meeting, I check in with them in front ah, of everybody else yes. on their goals. There's no money attached, right? You set your own goals. And yet knowing that they have those goals ready to go, you know, some of the authors will hit their word goals, you know, the hour before the meeting, right? They're there <laughs> frantically <laughs> typing if they set a word goal yeah. for themselves. And it's incredibly motivating. And, and I don't, you know, chastise them. I just ask them how it went. And yet just that little bit of pain that, that, but also not just the pain, but also when somebody hits all their goals, we're all clapping and rewarding. And it's like, way to go. You did it. And, you know, that, that um, peer pressure and that encouragement is really helpful for managing that internal editor. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. That, that possibly could be even more motivating. The pain of reporting that I haven't hit my goal could be even more motivating than the $100 Amazon gift card. So that's really good. I guess it depends on which you care for more, $100 or the approval of your peers. I guess it depends on the person. Yeah. Okay. You want to, you want to make this really brutal and painful is, you post on social media the people who didn't reach their goals. Wouldn't that be horrible? I don't, I don't like that idea. I don't like that idea, but it shows how important our peers can be in, in motivating us. So I like your idea. So we talked about attaching pain. Is there a more friendly way to do it? Is there a way to attach pleasure to, as a way of managing that internal editor? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Think about this. I, I mean, Thomas, let's say I was Jeff Bezos wealthy. Let's just say I was that wealthy. And I told you that I'm going to write you a check for $2.5 million if you can write 4,000 words in the next four hours. Could you do it? And the answer is, I bet everybody listening could, oh, you bet. I 2.5 million and I got to write 4,000 words in the next four hours? You bet I'm going to get it done. So the ability is there. What we need to change is the mindset. So since I don't have that kind of money, what can you reward yourself with? What is the pleasure element you can put out there? Is it new clothes? Is it a movie out this weekend? Is it a weekend getaway? Is it that new camera you've been wanting? Find something where you go, if I do this, I get this. And then you might do something as simple as put that as your screensaver on your computer or print out a picture of that new camera or that movie you want to go to and put it up so you see it. There's something that neurologically goes on inside us where we go, ooh, I get that. The anticipation is a huge motivator. So that's a way to attach pleasure to something where your mind goes, oh, I do this, I get this. 
It's also a way of attaching pleasure to a smaller chunk, right? Because finishing your manuscript, that's pleasurable, right? It's a great feeling to finish the rough draft or finish the second draft. And we have a tradition in our family when somebody accomplishes a goal like that, uh, we'll all go out to eat, right, and celebrate the rough draft. But what you're talking about, you could attach that to finishing chapter two, right? You could take a really small slice and be like, I am going to go see the next Marvel movie once I finish chapter two, and it's like, you know, the time for the Marvel movie is coming closer and closer, and then everyone's buzzing about it, and you're like hiding from social media to avoid spoilers, right? It really motivates you to write, or at least it would for me, because I really want to see that next <laughs> right. Marvel movie, whatever it is. And yet, you know, that doesn't cost a lot of money, but then I'm going to enjoy that movie more, you know, knowing it's like, I earned this. I wrote a whole chapter so I could be here in this theater. Yeah, that's exactly right, because our brains are not wired for, I'm going to get this six months down the road. They're just not. And and this is something I learned by reading James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which is an excellent book, by the way, where he says, make the reward small, specific, and timely. And I'll give you an example of how I did this in my own life. Last year, to motivate myself to work out, I did want that new camera. And so the way I motivated myself as I said, every time I work out, I get to put $5 in the camera fund. So I was anticipating every workout. I was anticipating getting that new camera. Every time I slipped the $5 in there, it was like, Oh, this camera's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Instead of, Hey, you know, six months from now, when you do X amount of workouts, you can buy it. No, I had the visceral feeling of that anticipation in my brain. And that was a huge motivator. So you're right, Thomas, those little things, every chapter, you get a little reward. I love that. What are some other ways to deal with the inner editor? Talk to her. <laughs> Have a conversation. Um, in our novels, we write dialogue. So I would write down that dialogue between the two of you. And you start out maybe something with, thank you so much for what you do. You are such a critical part of my novel. I need you. I really do, but not now. So for the moment, I need you to walk out the door and stay out there until I invite you back. And But I don't want to go outside the door. Uh, sorry, this is not optional, but I don't want it. I'm sorry. You're not in charge right now. I am. Let's say that one more time. Who's in charge? You? No, me. Now get out of here. Thank you. So maybe you write that out um, and address that person that is slowing you down. And you might even go as far as to write is to sketch out what you think your editor looks like if you're into cartooning or drawing or that kind of thing. And then you take that sketch into the kitchen or maybe you put her in the crawl space or maybe you stick him in a closet far, far away from your writing space. There's just something about physically moving that person away and saying, yes, thank you. You are definitely going to come out and we're going to play together, but not for the next two months or whatever it is. Now, this sounds really hokey, but as somebody who's worked with a lot of best-selling authors over the years, I can't tell you how many of them do silly things like this. <laughs> it's like they're different little like superstitions or hokey things of, you know, it's like kind of like if you watch baseball, right? The before the batter steps up to the plate, they almost all have this little ritual that they go through. And it's almost a different ritual for each one. You know, sometimes they'll tap their bat on their foot or maybe they'll do a crucifix on their chest or, you know, they'll point or they'll do something and each one they do the same ritual every time to help them get into the zone and it's almost like it doesn't matter what the ritual is it just means that they're doing something that kind of puts their body in because it's really hard to hit a baseball like a normal baseball and one thrown from a major league pitcher it's almost like a miracle every time it happens right like that's really difficult <laughs> and you have to really work to put yourself in that space and yet writing 
a good novel is also really difficult. In fact, there are more professional baseball players than there are professional writers who are making a living with writing novels. Right? So in, in a sense, it's easier to hit the baseball than wow. it is um, to wow, write true. the book. Now, it's not true if you include indie authors. There's a lot of indie authors who are making a living with their writing. But yeah, there's from, from last I saw the stats, there's more professional baseball players uh, making a living wage than there are uh, professional novelists. So, you know, don't knock the ritual the stupid, you know, corny ritual until you've tried it. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's something that helped me for a couple of years. I don't have it up anymore, but I was at a writing conference years ago and this guy came up. I'm not kidding you with a machete. I mean, a real sharp machete. And he had on it, <laughs> kill the editor. <laughs> and I was just fascinated by it. And he said, well, I'll trade you a book for my machete. Sign one of your books. And, and so I had up in my office for a number of years, kill the editor as a reminder. But I don't think we can kill the editor entirely. I think we need to learn to live with him and live with her. Because there is a time for the editor. Yeah. The time for the editor is during the second draft or the third draft when the editor is really useful. It, but it's during that first draft that, you know, for some authors, it's just crippling where they'll write a sentence or a paragraph and they'll go back and start editing that paragraph. And they may think, oh, I'm being efficient doing this, but it's that is not the way to write a book. The, the better thing to do is to write the next paragraph and then write the next paragraph and then go back and edit. And you really separate that editing time from that writing time. Yep. Yep. That's so good. Uh, another thing to try is the James Clear method. We just mentioned him with regard to his book, Atomic Habits. And one of the things he suggests is do whatever you're trying to do for two minutes. So for example, if you want to get in shape, you commit to working out for two minutes. You go down, to, go down to the gym, get on the treadmill for two minutes, and then you have to stop. You absolutely have to stop. Get off the treadmill at two minutes. And you go, but but now I'm kind of enjoying it. Nope, you got to stop. I suggest doing the same thing for writing, where you write for two minutes, and then you stop. And you have to quit writing. Well, I bet everybody can commit to two minutes. And you're going to start to have this feeling of, you're almost getting into the rhythm and then you got to stop. No, I want to keep going. And so fairly quickly, you'll realize, okay, I'm going to go for four minutes. Okay. I'm going to go for five minutes. I'm going to go for 10 minutes and you get into this rhythm of writing and you realize, oh my gosh, it's not as hard to push play as I thought it was. And then here's a suggestion. And I haven't tried this Thomas, but I'm going to call it the James clear James L. Rubart method. Again, haven't tried this, but I think it'd be interesting if you committed to writing for 10 minutes then you have to completely delete what you've written. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm guessing you're going to experience a little bit of pain deleting that 10 minutes of writing. I don't want to delete that. There's some good stuff in there. Sorry, you got to delete it. And I think you do that two, maybe three times, and the mental shift will be, I don't want to give up that stuff. Oh, then it's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. And I think that will subdue the inner editor because you're not going to be going back and editing it. It's gone forever. I remember when I was in college, I wrote this essay at a coffee shop and I just was like, man, this is brilliant. And something happened and I thought I had deleted the essay and I was just heartbroken. Mm. So I had to start over from scratch. And I was like, what did I write the first time? Now this was nay for sure. And so I rewrote the essay and, you know, it went way faster the second time because I'd already written it and I'd already done a lot of the foundational work. And right about the time I'd finished the essay, I found in like some other folder on my computer the original essay. And I was like, oh. and then, but I looked at the original essay. And I'm like, wow, this rewritten essay 
is way better. <laughs> you know, we went through the same thing, you know, in the early days of novel marketing. We'd have these big episodes. We'd record a whole episode. And there'd be some technical failure and the recordings didn't take. And we would re-record it. And it was always better the second time. And, you know, it was, it was painful and it was annoying, right? Because we had to do the whole thing again. But we would, you know, the first time the episode would take 30 minutes, we would re-record it and it would be all the same content in 25 minutes. You know, the five minutes of fluff just magically disappeared as a result of re-recording the episode. So I, I imagine this method, this James L. Rubart, James Clear method is too psychologically painful for anyone to give it a shot. But I imagine if you're willing to try it for just 10 minutes, you may be shocked at how effective it is uh, going through the effort to rewrite uh, those 10 minutes worth of work. Yeah, if you try it, email Thomas and let him know how that turned out for you. I'd be really curious. Yeah, post in the Facebook group, too, if you want. Uh, Novel Marketing Facebook group. Uh, if, if you've tried it, let us know. It only takes 10 minutes, and uh, we'd love to know how it works. Okay, what are some other ways that we can handle the inner editor? Um, this is something that it took me a while to discover, and it's extremely simple. But for me, it's been really uh, game-changing when it comes to my novels. And that's give yourself permission to write, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I mean. If you come up against a word and you don't know what the word is, or you can't find the right word, right? Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times where I'm like, okay, I know the word. I know the word. I go, you know, synonyms. No, I go online and I'm searching and I'm searching and I'm getting more frustrated, Thomas, because it's, it's 30 seconds and it's two minutes and it's three minutes has, have gone by searching for this stupid word. And now my anxiety's up. So it makes it even more stressful and I'm not able to objectively look at the word. Whereas if I just written, yeah, 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 and gone on, I can always go back and find the word. It, in other words, it's taken me out of the flow. And when I finally gave myself permission to write, yeah, 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 or a lot of times I'll just, I'll just write a, a, a line. So I know something needs to go there. I just don't know what it is. And then I'll just give it a quick yellow highlight. So I'll be able to look at it real quickly. Oh my gosh, that's really freed me up. So whether it's a word, whether it's a sentence, whether it's even a scene where you go, okay, the scene isn't working, but I know what happens after this scene. I'm going to keep moving. That's something that's really helped me. Oh, that's so helpful. And it's also helpful writing nonfiction. The nonfiction version of this is research, right? You're writing, 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 and then there's something you need to research or something you need to reference. Like you know that it exists, the the citation that you need to prove such and such. But in and I experienced this writing my book. I would leave my word processor and I would get lost in a research hole that would turn into a research dungeon <laughs> until finally what I started doing was I just said, look up such and such. And I would put that in the manuscript or it's like there's a bible verse that says something about something and i would put whatever i did remember and i would mark it in such a way where it's really obvious and sometimes even i would share it with my research team so my initial round of revisions with with kind of a small group of beta readers that i called my research team and they would sometimes go and look up the thing for me <laughs> or they're like oh yeah oh, here's cool. here's the bible verse you're looking for or here's that you know academic journal that you're looking for and it allowed me to keep writing instead and the other thing was you know going down a wikipedia hole trying to find the citation to find the academic journal that doesn't require the same kind of mental energy so when i'm like wasted at the end of a long writing session i can go in and then because i'm just using my mouse i can lean back on the couch and i'm browsing around trying to find that one academic journal and i'm not using up valuable writing time with research time 
And I, you know, again, it's about putting the right kind of activity in the right space. And writing is often the most emotionally strenuous work that a writer does, right? It's more emotionally strenuous than editing. It's more emotionally strenuous than research for most of us, right? Some people maybe researching is really exhausting, but I, but I suspect for most of us, the blank page is the biggest enemy. <laughs> and so, uh, ha- just working your way through that blank page and, and kind of batching your other activities is really helpful. All right, Jim, what are some specific roadblocks to watch out for? For me, again, I'm speaking of me personally, Thomas, but the one that I really have to look out for in this is justification. I, it's easy for me to justify why I need the editor to come in and work on this now. It's easy for me to justify not sitting down and writing because, oh, I just, I just know the editor is going to take me out today. So I'll put off my writing. I'll do it later. Marketing 101 says we buy with emotion. And we back it up with logic. And that's very true. It's the way we pick political candidates. <laughs> we, we choose with emotion and we back these things up with logic. And so consequently, I would look out for that. I would look out for you making these arguments that are emotional arguments to stop you from writing that day or an emotional argument why, oh, the editor needs to jump in here. And my suggestion for folks that are struggling with this is after you have pressed through, I don't think I've met any writer that the, at the end of writing for half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour, you say, how do you feel? Oh my gosh, I didn't feel like getting started, but I'm so glad I did. I got a lot of good words in. Oh, so glad I finally got words down on paper. It's like most people at the end of the workout, you never at the end of the workout go, oh, I so regret having come here. Yet at the start of the workout, boy, they're making up a lot of excuses why they shouldn't have come. So my suggestion is when you are done, take an extra two minutes and write yourself a note. And the note's probably something like, boy, you really did not feel like starting to write at the start of this, did you? But how do you feel now? You feel fantastic. You pressed through. You did it. You feel great. So I'm going to remind you of this tomorrow when writing time pops up, how good you feel. And you print that out and you put it over your computer so when you sit down, you can read a message from your stronger self. You can read a message from your future self that is going to be saying that again if you press through and write. That's really good. What would you say is your biggest failure learning this? Uh, you know, What did you learn the hard way that you'd like to help us not have to learn in such a painful way? Um, probably the biggest thing I learned is that everyone is designed to write the way that they write. And it's probably a combination of being a pantser and being an outliner. And you have to figure out that path. I had a novel where I decided, because Randy Ingramanson's Snowflake method is, it's absolutely brilliant. And I saw the brilliance of it and I thought, I have got to use this method. And it shut me down for like three months. I just couldn't do it. That's a method where the editor was going all the time for me. And I finally gave myself the permission, permission to be a discovery writer. And that made all the difference. In other words, don't try to be the type of writer you're not. And it was, I was talking to Randy about it and he was great. He goes, yeah, doesn't work for everybody. Totally get that. So don't do that method, Jim. And it was really <laughs> freeing to hear it from the guy who'd actually written this brilliant, this brilliant book or this brilliant method. And so be the type of writer you are. That's really good. And I will say that's one of the fun things uh, to watch in the first year of the 
five-year plan. We have people read a book on discovery writing, a book on outlining, and then the snowflake method, which is like a hybrid of those. And it's one of the biggest takeaways that people enjoy the most in that first year is that they discover what they are. And what's been fun to watch is it's never the same thing, right? Some people are like, oh my gosh, outlining is finally unlocked my writing. I can write so much (laughs) faster. Or, oh, the snowflake method is perfect for me. And a lot of people really like the snowflake method. But the thing is that we're all different. There's no one size fits all approach. And you can find successful authors who have best-selling award-winning books in all three of these approaches. And occasionally you'll have people who are like dogmatic, like outlining is the only you way to, to go. Do it this way. Yeah, you have to do it this way. And it's true. They're absolutely true that for them, whatever they're saying is the only way to go. And they're also entirely wrong that when they say that this is how it is uh, for everyone. Uh, so, uh, Jim, you have any final tips or encouragement? Try, experiment, have those conversations. One of the things that we like to do is we like to f- uh, finish things with one fell swoop. In other words, if you have one conversation with the editor, okay, it's done. Now it's fixed. Now I never have to wrestle with this again. Well, sorry, the reality is you're probably going to have to wrestle with this again and again and again. So give yourself permission to fail. Give yourself permission to have those conversations with your inner editor and then give yourself permission isn't the right word. I guess I would s- encourage you to seek out other authors and just go, man, I'm having trouble uh, subduing the editor today. How are you doing it lately? So have conversations with your fellow writers. Yeah, this is where being in a critique group or a mastermind group is really, yeah. really helpful um, because we do better in community than we do alone. Speaking of community, our sponsor today is the Rubart Writing Academy. <laughs> James L. Rubart, could you tell us a little bit about the Rubart Writing Academy? I can. I can. Yeah, Thomas, it's, it has, and a lot of you know that this is one of the things I had to, that I've been doing that I had to drop novel marketing for is putting more time into this. And it has been so rewarding. So yeah, it's a four-day retreat where we get together in a very intimate setting, only nine students, and everything from critiquing your writing to marketing to the business of writing to should you go trad or indie to motivation and how do you keep going when you want to give up. And then probably the thing that has turned out to be, we didn't see this coming, the most powerful part of it is discovering the theme of your life discovering who you are at your core, discovering your identity. Because when you know that, then all of a sudden the stories and who you are on social media become so much easier and people get into flow. So essentially, if you want to rocket your publishing career forward in a quantum way, check out the Rubart Writing Academy. We'd, we'd love to have you come. All right. Our featured patron today is Deborah B. Diaz, author of Woman of Sin, Alicia of Athens is sold into slavery during the turbulent reign of Tiberius Caesar. And when she runs away, she finds herself in a battle-torn land of Palestine where her life is forever changed. So thank you, Alicia, for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. You are what keeps this show on the air. You're what helps cover our editing costs and our new fancy blog posts that we have adapted from every uh, podcast episode that's all due and thanks to our patrons so if you find this podcast helpful uh, and you want to help us stay on the air you can become a patron we'll have a link in the show notes and if you can't afford to be a patron but still want to help you can just send a private message with a link to this episode to one other writer you think would find it helpful and if you have a question that you'd like me to answer on a future episode do call our listener helpline you can call it at 512-827-8377 or at authormedia.com 
com. So, Jim, what have you been doing in your life post-podcasting? You've been on a beach sipping uh, margaritas? Oh, you got the camera. You, Thomas, you weren't supposed to tell anybody that. Yeah, it's been, it's, so since novel marketing, I've continued to do the pruning process of my life, trying to hone things down to just the big rocks. So that's been a really big part of it. But what I've been concentrating on is the Rubart Writing Academy. And by the way, Thomas, I wanted to give something free or way to your listeners, <laughs> formerly our listeners. Um, if you want to badly make an impression on editors and agents, there's a free download video. And all you have to do to get that is go to rubartwritingacademy.com slash badly. And I think Thomas will have that in the show notes and you can get that free video. But I, yeah, Thomas, I've been spending a lot of time in the Rubart Writing Academy. The other thing I've been spending a lot of time on is audiobook narration. I've always loved acting, took acting classes in college, and so now I'm really getting to act behind a microphone. So I've got two more books to go on a current contract that I have, and then I'll be looking for more books. And then the other thing that's been really fun is some of the listeners know Susan May Warren or Susie Warren, and Susie and I are right smack dab in the middle of writing a six-book series about a detective named Rembrandt Stone, and he solves cold cases by traveling back in time. So we're in the midst of writing those. I'm going to do the audio version, and that's been a lot of fun, too. That's really cool, and you're creating a special pen name for those, right? You're, you're having a little pen name author baby. We are. Yeah, indeed. So uh, the people involved in this project is me and Susie, obviously, and then her son, David, who we call him our Time Lord, because he's just one of these guys that can connect all the dots and brilliant. So the three of us are in partnership. And so the name of the author is going to be David James Warren. And that's not that's that'll be an open secret. Uh, so that's going to be the author. And, and those books will start coming out in 2021. That's awesome. Uh, you have been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. and James L. Rubart back from the dead on the Novel Marketing <laughs> Podcast. Uh, if you want to find the show notes for this episode or to get new episodes delivered to your phone, automatically visit novelmarketing.com. Thank you so much for listening.